Hello and welcome to the new and improved Mirror Fidelity. That's right, you are hearing intro music. We have officially arrived. Thanks very much to the kindness and generosity of Kenneth Paget, a member of the Joy Eternal. What you're hearing is uh, Finally Alive, uh, one of the songs from uh, 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 their soundtrack, or not their soundtrack, their album. Uh, and so we're so grateful for his kindness. He really, it was just frustration on his part. He couldn't take not hearing music at the beginning, at the end, and decided to step in and just solve the problem, which we were delighted to have solved. So thanks very much. Uh, we hope that you all go buy uh, the album. It's terrific. We'll have it linked uh, in the notes at Mirror Orthodoxy, of course, as usual. So I am joined. Again, my name is Matthew Anderson. I am joined by... Alistair Roberts and Derek something or other. Oh we don't my know gosh. why. Um, we're not sure why we let. Yeah, I know, you know. Um, <laughs> like we're not sure why years. we let him on the show to, to begin with in the first place. Um, I can say it. I just like trolling you about it, Derek. Um, so, uh, we. I don't know how this emerged for us. Uh, my guess is that Derek said something on Twitter that was probably um, an annoyance to someone as he does. Um, but, uh, I, you know, Derek, Derek, it's all right. Um, we were talking internally about the relationship between biblical studies and systematic theology. And we thought that we would sit around and talk about that for 40 minutes or so, really to thrill the theologically minded of our audience. Um, I can't think of a more, dare I say, nerdy subject than <laughs> the relationship between biblical studies and systematic theology. But there you have it. I'm sure it's going to be gripping. Um, we, we, so, had an, we had an entire that, episode on apophatic theology, so I'm just going to point that out. That's true. That might, that might take the cake. I enjoyed that episode. I did too. I'm just, I'm just, that was a good episode. In terms of theological nerdery. It's we've fair. we've done worse. It's a fair point. Fair point. Right. So uh, what is, in fact, the relationship between biblical studies and systematic theology? Derek, since you're the progenitor of this little scrum, uh, I'm going to force you to tell us what the answer is. Go. I, OK, that's awful. Um, biblical. So this is this is some of the. This is the question that I guess I've been chewing on for the last year or so is people ask you uh, when you get into a program, what is systematic theology? And then you have to try and explain it. And most of the time, the, the best I can do is, well, it's, it's theology that's kind of, you know, laid out neatly. Um, but, but really, the, the question of the relationship between biblical studies and systematic theology is... Um, can be can be kind of a fraught one in uh, academic settings and divinity schools, or just even in um, in online writing. As people start to think through, um, okay, wh wh what makes what makes biblical studies unique? Uh, what distinguishes it from theology? Can it be distinguished from theology? Um, and should it be? Um, and, and what is systematic theology? Where where uh, do we need it in a sense if we've already got biblical studies and really theology should just be biblical in which case what 
why isn't isn't systematic theology part of kind of the problem making it rather abstract and distant from the text and isn't that when horrible things in the history of theology pop up like like Calvinism um, is like the quintessential bad system um, so thinking about that um, biblical studies in to my mind biblical studies is sort of a close close reading of the text and its historical uh, and literary and narrative uh, context so um, actually the, 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 the formulation I like I find very handy is uh, John Webster's uh, John Webster thinks of all theology as or talks about all theology as a form of biblical reasoning so it's reason attending the text attending you know uh, God's divine self-communication in Revelation in in Scripture, and um, and biblical reasoning breaks up into two halves, and one is you know exegetical reasoning, and, and that kind of corresponds to biblical studies, which is kind of this close, attentive following of the way the words go, right? So we're, we're breaking down what Paul says, we're breaking down what, how Mark has constructed the various pericopes and ordered them together in order to 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 give us. Um, a testimony of Christ in the Gospels. Um, dogmatic reasoning is his is his phrase for for systematic theology, and, and dogmatic reasoning functions not by leaving the scriptures behind, or even like some people tend to think of uh, systematic theology as correcting the scriptures because God wasn't tidy enough to to drop a systematic theology from the heavens upon us. This is very unhelpful of him. Um, no, instead dog, dogmatic reasoning is, is um, it's another way of re- reading the text, uh, reading along, kind of gathering together what we've learned in exegetical reasoning. Um, and I would say pressing deeper um, uh, and oftentimes rearranging what we find in a, different conceptual form, different conceptual idiom in order to kind of gather together um, what we have learned in our exegetical reasoning in biblical studies um, in ordered topics oftentimes, although the topic ordering may or may not matter depending on how tightly you organize things. But it's, it's oftentimes a matter of pressing deeper into the subject matter of the text, the, the, the reality that the texts are referring to. Um, more specifically, I think, when it comes to the moral and metaphysical and ontological subject matter. And um, yeah, so I, I, I think there, there are two parts of one broader project. Um, so yeah, that's that's my nutshell, or really a nutshell of John Webster's nutshell of the relationship between biblical studies and systematic theology. Alistair, what did I get wrong? <laughs> well, first of all, I'm I appreciate Webster's dogmatic work on many fronts, but when it comes to the handling of scripture, I hardly think he's a good exemplar. Um, one of the things that's most striking oh about goodness. his work is just is just how absent words just how absent intense 
engagement with the scriptural text is. I read his treatment of Trinity and creation recently, and that was especially striking there, where you have this brilliant theological text that seems to have left the orbit of the biblical literature. So there's no close discussion of Genesis 1 or anything like that. There's proof texts here and there, but there's no deep engagement with the biblical witness. It's very much springboards for a dogmatic discussion of themes within the tradition and themes of um, divine operations, these sorts of things. And for what he has to say on those, it's incredibly valuable and helpful. Yet, it doesn't exactly illumine the text that much because it's not engaging with the text. It leaves the text orbit and it leaves the impression to the reader, for me at least, that dogmatics is something that sees scripture as um, the vanishing mediator for its project or or treats scripture in that way. Even if it doesn't see it that way, um, it can often treat it that way, that we've got all this information from scripture and we've drawn these theological structures and gradually we become more and more absorbed with the questions that these structures generate rather than with the the questions that the scripture itself generates. And we become more and more absorbed with the dogmatic tradition and its various questions than with the way that the scripture lays these things out. And in a, a piece that you wrote a while back that you linked again recently, you talk about the fact that both biblical um, theologians and systematic theologians come at the scripture, come at theology with presuppositions. And I think that's correct. That's absolutely correct. We all come to scripture and we all come to our thinking about theology with presuppositions. The question is, the degree to which the presuppositions of dogmatic theology are contestable and open to correction by the scripture in particular. And that is one of the problems that I think many people on the biblical side of this, the biblical side of this conversation have with those on the more systematic side. More seriously, I think the concern is that dogmatic theology in practice, if not in theory, can so often become a map um, of scripture rather than an itinerary. It doesn't actually help you work through scripture so much as provide an artifact that substitutes for the territory that you're supposed to be engaging with and you end up having discussions about the map etc and you step back from the you step back from the territory and the engagement with the actual texts and what you end up with is a loss of deep scriptural engagement and i think one of the um times where this has concerned me is in the recent debates about the Trinity and the eternal subordination of the Son, these sorts of debates, where there have been a lot of good dogmatic objections to what has been said. And I agree with these objections. Um, The ones that have resisted the notion of eternal subordination of the Son. Yet, on the other hand, there's been so little engagement with the scriptural concerns that the other side is raising. There's been remarkably little engagement with texts like 1 Corinthians 11.3, which is the key text that people from the side that supports eternal relations of authority and submission, that's their text. But yet 
there's very little engagement with that. Rather, the dogmatic tradition serves as a sort of, well, I've seen as a, a frustrating Kafkaesque authority in relation to the biblical um, theologians, constantly telling them they're doing something wrong or they fail to take account of something. And it's just tripping people up, but it's not actually helping them illuminating scripture and serving as the handmaid to our actual engagement with God's truth as it is expressed within scripture. Furthermore, there's this difference between scripture as laid out in a sort of synchronic systemic fashion as one large system existing in a single moment in time and experiencing the scripture as a movement through time, a steady unveiling and or an unfolding of God's truth. And that means of experiencing the scripture as an unfolding of truth, I don't think is dispensable or um, irrelevant to the type of truth that it is. Um, and if we start to neglect that, even if we're engaging with trying to engage with the underlying realities, if we miss that temporal aspect that you see very much in biblical studies, I think you're losing something of the essence of what scripture itself is. And I think that's okay, a particular so Derek, concern I, for systematics. I, Derek, I know you're going to jump in here with a lot of thoughts and, and responses, but before you do, um, I want to probe a couple of angles, ask a couple questions here. The worst, um, we already have an argument, okay? <laughs> yeah, I know. No, no, but, but they're, they're, they're mainly for what Alistair just said. Um, Alistair, it seems like you frame the critique a couple of ways. So against Webster, you said the scripture becomes um, a uh, jumping off point uh, for reflections about the things itself. I wonder um, what you think about the difference between showing one's work in writing theologically and um, engaging in and, and treating scripture just as a jumping off point. So is it the case that Webster, you know, just uses lines of scripture and then goes off and does his own thing? Or is it the case that he is engaged in the kind of reading practices that you are describing it just doesn't show that work in in his theological writing for other reasons. Second, is the do you view so do you do you view the work of the dogmatician uh, who writes theology in the way that you object to as mutually exclusive with or to reading uh, biblical theology in the way that you've described? That is. If I'm writing about the things themselves and I'm doing it in a non sort of temporal sense, am I communicating that that's the only way in which people should think about these things? Or am I suggesting that here is one worthwhile and worthy way of thinking about these things and thinking and, and, and is it possible to think that I could also believe that you should go read biblical theology as well? I have other questions, but I'll let you take those up. In response to the first one, I think, in my estimation, yes, that is very much the way that Webster can treat the scripture. Um, yet, there is incredible value in what he has to say. I mean, he's a brilliant dogmatician, and he's someone that everyone should read. I am not an enemy 
of systematic and dogmatic theology. It is something that everyone should be engaging with, and really? biblical theologians in mm. particular, because I think often they neglect that. And I love reading someone like Barbink, I love reading someone like Webster, and they inform my theology in various ways. But when reading someone like Webster in that piece or in his treatment of scripture, ironically, his doctrine of scripture expressed has this problem as well. What I think is evidenced is a systemic failing within the discipline. Now, in response to your second question, no, I don't think that these things need be mutually exclusive or that the person who engages in dogmatic theology in the way that I've described is claiming a monopoly um, upon the treatment of scripture and saying that that's the only way to approach it. But rather, I think when there's a failure to coordinate the two disciplines together, and that's what's particularly I'm calling for, a need for coordination between these disciplines, a constant um, traffic and communication between them where we take the systematic insights and apply them to scripture and test them by scripture, but then also use scripture to clarify those insights and have this constant, constant mutually correcting conversation. And I think we need that. I think one of the things that the recent debates about the Trinity have revealed is that on both sides there are problems, problems that have arisen in large part because of the failure to communicate closely between the disciplines. And so when I'm thinking about something like the Trinity and Scripture, I would have loved if in that article um, Webster had done something more like what Francis Watson does in Text, Church and World, where he takes the story of creation in Genesis 1 and says, if we look at this story closely, implicit within it is a Trinitarian structure in the different forms of creation that take place. There are three different forms of creation. And when we look at those, we can see that even implicit within this text is a Trinitarian structure. And so on the one hand, the theology, our doctrine of the Trinity, can inform our reading of Scripture and enhance it, enabling us to see things that we would not have seen if we'd not been attentive in the ways that systematic theology can train us to be. On the other hand, it takes the biblical witness and it uses that to hone and to enrich our understanding of the systematic categories. And I think it's that sort of communication that I'm looking for. It's not an a not saying that we need to get rid of dogmatic theology or systematic theology and just do biblical theology, or vice versa. Rather, what we need is a close communication and mutual appreciation between the two. Right. And, and this, that is something that I think is lacking. Yeah, and I, I think most, uh, well, at least the, the systematic systematicians that I read, and even Webster himself suggests there, um, is that systematics and dogmatics are supposed to be kind of part of the broader uh, hermeneutical process uh, that that part of part of the part of the circle, so to speak, um, that you know you you we engage with the text, we systematically reflect on it, um, you know whether using philosophical engagement or you know, would, how, however you do that, and then come back to the text and see how it illuminates or shines light on the whole, because oftentimes one of the one of the one of the main strengths of systematic or dogmatic theology is is that uh, pursuing of the 
of the broader scope, the whole kind of setting setting things in their proper proportions. That oftentimes, when you um, biblical studies can oftentimes uh, be focused on all the tiny little minute leaves on the trees, uh, and such that such that any kind of pulling back and looking at the forest is just anathema. That is that is just so often the case that, that you see in certain biblical biblical scholars, um, any any attempt to schematize, any attempt to kind of set things in their concrete whole is um, you know, again, foreign uh, abstracting, systematizing. And so this is where you get these weird little atomistic readings where I'm just going to look at this particular text and I'm not going to try and connect it too much to this one over there because we got to let each and every individual text speak for itself, even if we're going to set up some glaring, bizarre contradiction and, and say we're, we're, we're being authentic to the text. Um, I'm not saying that's what you do, but again, I've, I've seen some of these biblical studies where, where, we get caught up in these minutiae and, or, or sometimes not even just minutiae, but get caught up in the text in such a way that um, the idea of moving to speaking concretely or confessionally about the subject matter of the text, or maybe reflecting on the text in such a way that, um, uh, you know, it doesn't, I'm, I'm maybe not treating the way this text fits in the recent biblical theology that we've developed about the land or whatever, but you know, some theological question that maybe not about suffering or evil or whatever that naturally arises from it. Um, well, that's not necessarily the initial aim of the author. So let's not probe that. Um, even though the text from a I don't know, systematician's perspective, it might actually shine light on, well, it tells us this about the nature of God, in which case we can kind of at a second level begin to think on this other issue uh, related to it. And so that's, that's kind of where I think I get frustrated with some of the way that biblical studies is conducted. Um, again, not all, uh, but it tries to absent itself from these discussions or, or, or kind of write them off. And then they still go ahead and assume certain answers to these questions. And this is where that one, that one article that you pointed out, it was a bit from Bavink who was, who was answering the charge from the uh, biblical theology movement of his time that, you know, dogmaticians come to the, uh, you know, or, or confessional theologians come to the text armed to the teeth with presuppositions, whereas they're just trying to do biblical theology. Uh, as if the fact that they go to a Methodist church up the street has no plays no role uh, in their in their very very precise, very analytic um, biblical exegesis. Uh, instead of just grappling plainly with the fact that okay, well, we have these we have these systematic concerns too. Um, so I, I think that's part of my concerns with some of the way that biblical studies often conducts itself, especially in maybe not so much in evangelical biblical studies, but in the broader, broader contemporary scene. And I think that was one of the things that um, Webster was best at critiquing was the kind of the, the secularization, uh, the naturalization of biblical studies uh, that, treated these things, these kinds of questions as 
as off limits. Um, and so it gets lost in the lost in, in the, what we might call surfaces and never actually penetrating towards the depths of the actual subject matter of the God who is being witnessed in the text. Um, so Derek, that's, that's, yeah. Derek, can I, can I follow up from right there and ask both of you what you think the, um, primary subject matter matter of theological reflection actually is and the way in which that answer structures this debate. So, and secondly, the primary subject matter on the one hand, and secondly, what you think the sort of primary materials of theological reflection or reasoning are, uh, and the way in which that structures this debate. So it seems like uh, one thing that you um, are both sort of coming down on different sides on is the way in which, so if Alistair's critique, to go to back to Alistair's critique, it uh, seemed like it wanted us to, uh, that it's very important for us to read the text to be able to more properly understand the text itself, which makes it sound like the primary subject matter for theological reflection is the text itself, maybe excluding other aspects which we could use, like experience, like uh, reason, like the tradition of the church, theological tradition of theological reflection, and so on and so forth. Um, on the other hand, Derek, you closed at the end by talking about the primary subject matter being the God who uh, we are writing about. But it seems like Alistair's concern is that um, that formulation becomes abstract and dehistoricized and disconnected from the actual history of the revelation of that God, if you don't frame it in this sort of in the way that the Bible frames it. So I want to hear both, both of your answers to that, those questions, what you think the primary subject matter of theological reflection is and your understanding of uh, the primary materials for theological reflection and the way in which your answers to those affect how you stand on these issues. I think when can just take one step back, the way that um, Derek frames these questions very often seems to presume that systematic theology is dealing with the whole and biblical um, studies is dealing with the parts and talking about just focusing narrowly on the leaves on the trees or this atomistic approach. And I think that framing is highly um, tendentious itself. I think the key difference <laughs> between systematic theology, as Derek has framed it, and biblical theology, as I would frame it, is that biblical theology, let me, let me just give a tendentious reading of my own. Um, that was what your first answer was, though. Is, <laughs> biblical theology is like playing through the musical piece, the symphony, and recognising the way that the different parts relate to each other through a temporal medium. And systematic theology can often, at its worst, be like replacing that with just having the score all written out so you can see it all in one view and thinking that that is the way that you understand that symphony. Whereas I believe that the symphony is best understood as you appreciate its temporal character. The temporal character is not um, dispensable. Now, getting back to Matt's question, I think 
when we're talking about the object of theological reflection, we have experience and we have these other things as part of it, but these things are very much things that we bring to the text. The text is something that we are reflecting upon in order to see through that to the God who reveals himself within it and through it. Um, and then I think also theological reflection is a second-order discipline. It's very much for the service of the worship and confession of the people of God. It's not our primary act of worship or um, Christian reflection and meditation on God's truth. That is something that happens within um, the worship of the church primarily and within its service of God. And so in that respect, to not leaving out things like Christian experience, um, but these are very much things that we bring to the act of um, theological reflection. They transform us to enable us to be better readers of the text. Same with tradition. Tradition is primarily a tradition of reading. It's a reading together and a learning from what has been said beforehand, a recognition that we come in the middle of a conversation and that as we attend to what has been said previously within that conversation, we ourselves are given greater insight into the subject matter of that conversation. But the subject matter of that conversation is not primarily the conversation itself. So, uh, the, yeah, the questions again are, what is the, ob what is the main object of theological reflection? And then second was, repeat that. The primary, primary materials. materials. Um, there, I actually don't think I'm going to, I'm going to differ from Alistair very much. Um, I think it's, I think the primary object is, is um, the triune God himself in his saving activity um, as revealed in scripture. Um, and so, you know, we only have access, I mean, well, caveat the way we put this, we only have cognitive access and true cognitive kind of objective access to God and all things in relation to God through what he has said about himself. Um, so, so all reflection um, is taking place uh, on the basis of God's word, which is, uh, you know, the testimony of God's acts and his words in history to save humankind. Uh, save his people. And so um, I think we're going to be reflect. I mean, I, I, I try to be as biblical as possible in my quote unquote systematic reflection. This is actually where I think somebody like, um, like uh, Kevin Van Hooser's work is, is very helpful because um, the, the point is to reflect on uh, scripture in such a way that it tends to, you know, God's great doings, you know, his, you know, the, the, the theodramatic acts of, of the triune God and, and what that tells us about him and what that tells us about ourselves, our place in, you know, the unfolding historical work of, uh, God's redemption and, and, and our place as the church, um, within that in response to God. And so I think I'm going to come out very, very similar similarly to, uh, to Alistair. And I think part of what's going on is we're both, we're both actually thinking of, of, uh, and speaking of biblical studies and systematics, um, as 
<laughs> where they can go, where the best where the best parts don't, but where the worst and sometimes representative parts do. Um, so so I think that's part of the that's part of the debate there. And going back to your metaphor of the symphony, um, I think I think systematic theology at its best, dogmatic theology, um, by helping us appreciate the score, uh, looking at the score le- laid out cleanly, uh, it helps keep the symphony from from being played poorly or from um, misconstruing it as a as a concerto or something else, uh, which again sometimes the the sometimes the way modern biblical modern biblical studies has conducted itself um, has has militated against that kind of broad synthetic symphonic reading um, uh, in, in a drive to cut off any um, this systematic impulse to maybe impose a system upon the text they've uh, again, at its worst, it, it 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 tends to to shut off any idea of like unity. Period. Uh, and obviously, I don't think evangelical biblical thing. studies does this very much, although at times. Um, but yeah, so I, I again, I think it's again, I think they're, I think they are complementary disciplines. I think they should be in close conversation and even creative tension. At, at times, uh, because they are trying to deal with the same subject matter at their best. So, yeah, Alistair. The occasionally frustrating thing is that often at their best, it's when they're not in communication. <laughs> um, because often when they are in close communication, they just nag each other. Yeah. And I think in some respects, the conversation between systematic and um biblical theology can be <laughs> i mean even this conversation can be akin to a rather fr- fraught marriage counseling session <laughs> and what we really need is healthy communication and to think about how to have healthy communication where we listen to each other carefully and give each other the space in which to um say what needs to be said and to learn from each other now i think I mean, I have. Oh, sorry, are you apologizing? Is that what this theologians. is? Some of my best friends, indeed, are systematic and dogmatic <laughs> theologians. Yet, I believe that we need to think about examples of good practice here and learn from those. So, for instance, a good book um, is something like um, Wesley Hill's treatment of Paul and Paul's use of the Trinity and how the Trinity can help illuminate our reading of Paul and how Paul can help illuminate our reading of the Trinity. That is very helpful. That is the sort of work that we need more of that needs to be attentive to the best of systematic theology. And there's great richness there that has not generally been explored by biblical theologians. And on the other hand, be attentive to the best of biblical studies, the work that's been done on the text in question. And what I'm advocating for more than anything else is that that should be an area of growth, an area where we give more of our effort. And as systematic or as biblical studies people, we need to be pushing in that direction ourselves, seeing what we can do rather than just nagging the other discipline and saying where they're doing things wrong. We need to be pursuing good practice. 
and thinking of ways that we can enrich and help each other yeah. in our respective tasks. I think, I think one of the related issues that I've seen is um, oftentimes in academic disciplines, there's that sense that, that uh, if you're not doing things the way I would have done it, um, then you're doing it wrong. Uh, and that just kind of is, you know, that that's not, you know, that's, that's not the first question I would have asked of that text. That's not the first, that's, that's not the first subject matter that would have suggested itself to me. That's, that's not the logical ordering I would have pursued. And this happens across, I think across disciplines. Um, and so that oftentimes sets up, you know, false dichotomies in the way we even treat the same subject matter, the same text and, and instead of pursuing, okay, well that's, that's one ordering and that's, that help that helpfully shines a light on this dimension but I'm now going to take up this other dimension that needs to be accounted for, uh, as well. Um, and so that I think oftentimes happens. You, you, you sometimes you have, you have debates even within systematic theology, I think where, you know, so-and-so will choose to have their theological conversation about the text, um, in relation to, uh, maybe, maybe associate, sociology instead of, um, you know, a more traditional conversation partner like philosophy or something like that. And, and all of a sudden, well, that's not the, it's not the right way to do that. And, and instead of, instead of seeing them as, as compliment, complementary, um, approaches and, and, um, levels of, of discourse and levels of analysis, um, we oftentimes treat them reductively, uh, when, when really that doesn't need to be the case. And I think that often is, is some of the dispute between, um, systematic and, and biblical studies, instead of realizing that sometimes what you're doing is you're operating, you're talking about the same subject matter, and, but you're just operating at different registers. Um, and, and, uh, yeah. So, Matt, go on. Yeah. So now that we've reached this happy concord uh, from our <laughs> Matt, former I've, discord, I've, Alistair, I forgive you. Um, That's all I'm trying to say. I, okay. <laughs> yeah, and no, I'm glad that we've we've made peace here. Um, I we have to wrap up soon, um, and so I want to ask you guys one final question, which I exhort you to answer briefly, um, and that is, what practically do you think hangs on this? So if I'm a person in the pew or a pastor and I've listened to this discussion and I've made it to the end, um, what should I be doing differently in light of this sort of problem that you guys have identified within the academic disciplines? And, and yeah, how can sort of I respond and think about my own formation as a Christian in light of um, this tension, this creative tension between uh, biblical uh, thinking, biblical studies, and systematic theology. So, final question. There you have it. I'll you start off, Derek. No, you go ahead. <laughs> I think I deserve the final word here. Wow. <laughs> okay. No, I think. The, no, I think the difference for me um, that it makes is that it teaches us to be attentive to different aspects of God's truth. So I've heard I've heard preachers before who give the same sermon or the same five sermons, one of the same five sermons every single week 
irrespective of the text. Because what they're essentially preaching is their systematic theology, and they're not very attentive to what the text says. And as a result, they lose a great deal of the richness and the goodness and the truth of God's word. Things that would be surprising and illuminating were they to attend to them. I think also, on the other hand, what biblical theologians can gain from more attentiveness to systematic theology is a greater sense of the framing of the biblical narrative, the categories that often frame the biblical narrative, if you're focusing very narrowly upon immediate details within the text, or you're focusing upon even swathes of the text, you can miss the larger picture and what emerges from that and the way that the biblical texts are, um, for want of a better word, sacramental or iconic, that you can see through them a greater truth that exceeds the mere um, historical details within them. And I think that's one of the things that has been very central to my work, that when you're reading the biblical texts, they are figural. And as figural texts, they present us with something that is greater than what immediately lies upon the surface of those texts. They are, as, as it were, like stained glass through which a light pours. And as we're attending to the text, we shouldn't just allow our eyes to be captivated by the surface to the exclusion of what lies beyond it and was, which is revealed through it. And I think systematic theology is very good at drawing our attention beyond the point of the surface of the text, to pay attention to the depth that is revealed through it. But yet that depth is revealed through the text. And if you neglect the text, you will not see that depth as you ought to. And so I think it's the correspondence between the two that is essential for me, that recognition that without the other, the other will always be operating with one hand tied behind its back. Mm-hmm. No, that, that's excellent. I think... Um I I would love to sign off on that. One of one 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 thing that I'll add is that um, you know I've 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 heard that I've heard the same five sermon uh, <laughs> idea as well uh, or practice as well, and uh, I think my 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 concern with these things is is um. Yeah, just getting to the subject matter of the text and and doing it rightly in ways that don't um, don't don't deform it, um, that don't deform either the text or what it's talking about, um, the God who is who who it's pointing to. Um, I think one of the benefits of the proper relating of an integration of systematic and biblical studies is. Um, actually just the work of the church, the work of uh, contextually embodying, uh, contextually answering God in the particular times and places that he's called us. Um, is when we start to see things in light of the whole, when we, when we, when we start to um, look at the particulars, yes, very closely at the particulars in light of the whole, in light of the, the subject matter that helps us to um, embody in our time and our places, you know, uh, the mind of Christ. And that's, that's one of the, it's one of the things I've, it's one of the phrases that uh, Van Huser really emphasizes is kind of this, this embodying the, the reality of Christ, the mind of Christ uh, by everyone, everywhere, and at all times, 
um, by partic- by paying attention to what was said then and there and that particular time in the text. And so kind of moving from the then there and, and at that time to the everyone everywhere at all times in the appropriate way is I think a, a big part of why this conversation is so important, being able to mediate that, that distance, um, in our thought and our practice. So that's, that's part of why my concern in, in why I think this conversation is so important. So, yeah, but Matt wraps up. Derek, I I think that's a fine note to end on. Um, and it does add a lot. Um, mainly my only thought about this discussion is that I, I just really want to commend you, Derek, for making it 30 whole minutes before you mentioned Kevin Van Hooser. It, it demonstrated an admir- admirable amount of uh, self-restraint. Um, I knew that we were going to get at least one reference. We didn't get more Guys. than that, though, uh, which was disappointing. But uh, but good work on, on waiting those 30 minutes. Uh, we appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, thank you, gents, for, for your thoughts on this. It's enormously helpful. I know I certainly benefited a lot from uh, listening to you and being able to ask you guys a few of my questions about th- this matter. For those of you who are listening at home, we hope you uh, are enjoying our new exit music. <laughs> uh, it's terrific. It's by The Joy Eternal. Um, go get their album. Uh, it's a great, great little album. And uh, we hope that you've enjoyed the discussion and that if you did, you'll tell a friend or two about it. Uh, rate, us, review, rate and review us on iTunes and all of that business. And if you have show ideas, uh, feedback, we are always open to hearing from our audience. We, we, we'd love to hear from our audience, in fact. So thanks very much for listening, and we will talk with you next week. Bye.